Hey, welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. Today is another very special episode for you. In light of everything that we've been discussing with Titan's Curse, today we are going to talk about queer myths and queering Greek myths and all of the problems and joys that come with that. So stick around. I realize I haven't introduced myself in like 10 episodes, so <laughs> my name is Erica Ito. I am a co-host of Seaweed Brain, joined by Carter Nakamoto. Yep. Hi. We've grown so much since we said we weren't going to share our last names. <laughs> joined today by Tawny Brandt. I'm back. Welcome back, Tawny. Before we start this uh, conversation, we should probably make clear that we are not experts in queer theory nor are we classicists none of us even have undergraduate degrees at this point so True. like it would be a stretch and even if we were studying the classics or queer theory to to do this but, but here we are we're we're gonna do our best we have lived experience and skepticism about the classics and i think in a lot of ways that's what counts also a useful conversation to have in light of the way that we have excessively queered these <laughs> the specific books <laughs> and the ways in which these books are themselves reimaginings of the classics that take certain liberties in order to fit yes. within modern sensibilities. Exactly. That's what we're interested in thinking about together here. Yeah. And we debated having, we debated holding off on this conversation until we discussed Heroes of Olympus because of yeah. course that is when Rick sort of canonically began to queer his own characters. <laughs> we should also put in a trigger warning. Yes. Um, we're going to be talking about about sexual violence. There's going to be some discussion of, uh, like, queer phobia. A lot of these myths yeah. are not myths that I would, you know, tell, especially in their full form to, you know, like, children or people who have difficulties with certain language and experiences. Yeah, so if you're a kiddo, maybe just hop on over to... Battle of the Labyrinth. Skip this guy over. Uh, I would have loved to hear some of this when I was a forming pubescent. Oh, yes. Actually. Just last night, I realized <laughs> that my entire conception of queerness was glee. I said that! I said it literally, like, we... took, like, ten beats. I literally couldn't believe <laughs> Daddy it. Daddy was like, yeah, I was so a... <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have the time, nor the listener interest in having the full conversation about the depths of... <laughs> of, of glee's influence. There's the Jenna Ushkowitz Kevin McHale podcast. They literally run their own podcast about the history yeah. of Glee and such. Well, yeah, but oh, oh, yikes! This is now is as good a time as any to, to just plug that. Like, if you are interested in not having that be your foundation for queerness, there's so much good content out there that you don't have to go in circles oh. to defend or to like re-examine yeah. for Although yourself. Clearly, working masochists for going in circles and defending and re-examining yes. things that are out of date. We're we're clearly kind of <laughs> scraping things that are like not things that i would want to read to children there are lots of things that i would show to children there are like so many good like queer children's animated we do shows like a, right what's now making us it's... happy this week at the end of this episode with like queer materials that we would encourage people to watch i i would like that i would like that a lot I think okay we should do let's that. do that let's do that because we we it's been stirring so uh we're gonna dive in obviously this bigger conversation we're gonna talk about a few select myths that we have chosen to discuss with uh carter and i and tawny asking for tawny's opinions um summarizing some stuff bringing in some external texts like a little like a real book club this this week <laughs> i'm gonna start tawny by asking like we've obviously been discussing the hunters of artemis at length 
in our last three episodes, but what would you like to add, to add in there? Yeah, I almost feel as if I, I mean, as definitely as a kid, I don't think that I sensed with, I guess, with the context of like, just like not having the language to describe it. I definitely didn't like sense queerness within these novels. Mm-hmm. What I did sense though, upon rereading is just that I think like, when I read about the hunters and read about, um, the concept of like Talia joining them later, I really was very like very turned off by the hunters and I I didn't understand the concept of like having a group of girls that were your friends. Um like as an AFAB person, I was just like, I don't I didn't have that. And I didn't feel ever like I had that kind of community or want for that community. In fact, I had kind of been conditioned to just not want that kind of community. And so I was very like turned off by this group. Um, and I really did feel that Talia made an enormous sacrifice um, in becoming one of the hunters. And I, and I felt, I felt similarly this time, but I was much more coming, from, coming at it from a different, different perspective of like, now I do have women friends. Um, <laughs> cool. Is there anything else you'd like to spill? I guess, I don't know. I think, I feel like Chloe talked about this a bit in her episode, but just like, 12 is just a very strange age to be frozen at for any person. But as a young girl, you are already sexualized at 12. So you're just now stuck in the state of like being sexualized, but also it's like, like low key, like not low key, high key, like very wrong that you're sexualized at that age and very scary and like pedophilic. Uh, but you are. And so you're like stuck at that age and everyone, you're just there forever. <sighs> another <laughs> crazy. Another vote to, uh, change the age of the hunters of artemis in the disney plus series yes we'd love to see it i should make a petition i mean what age would you have to be like i'm like they should be eight. Oh, you think it should, i think that oh. they should be whatever i think that they should be extended ages of whatever they desire i, can't, I just can't have them stuck between 12 and 14 it stresses me out yeah Okie dokie. So we mentioned this, uh, or I mentioned this in, uh, again, a couple episodes ago, um, this book by Helen Morales and Taking the Rising. We're going to reference it a few times throughout this episode because it like is wonderful lot. and you should. <laughs> oh no, we're going to talk about it a lot. This might as it's a companion guide to this week's episode. I tweeted her. She liked it. She retweeted it. And I, it sounds <laughs> like she's on board with us, but like a lot of it is heavily informed specifically by chapter eight in Antigone Rising. <laughs> Just putting that out there. We're citing our sources. As I mentioned, the book features a lot of myths that have carried their way over to our current culture and society here in America, quote, and of course, the flame of Western civilization, if you ask Rick, because of classicism and the way that culture and patriarchy reiterates itself. Um, and how we can take those myths and flip them on their head to make them useful and inspirational to us as people that are perhaps frequently oppressed in these myths and shouldn't necessarily take comfort in them. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a little quote that I thought we would begin uh, the episode with from Helen Morales. The role of Greek myth as queer idealism has a long history. Psychoanalysis and sexology emerged in the 19th century and were influenced by ancient myths and ideas about desire. These disciplines pathologized homosexuality and lesbianism and, in categorizing them and psychologically abnormal and unhealthy, gave scientific authority to the criminalization of gay and lesbian relationships. The same period saw a surge in advocacy for quote-unquote Greek love, notably in England through the writers of John Addington Simmons and Oscar Wilde. Just so we know, there's a history here. Basically, like we're not, we're obviously not jumping in blind to this conversation. (laughs) And with that, we should probably, we should probably set the scene. For ancient Greece. 
Yeah. As we've said, in Western civilization, some people do hark back to the Greeks as a specifically, like, very open and very sexually liberal time where, Mm -hmm. like, gender abnormality was much more celebrated. But... Mm -hmm. It was patriarchy. Wrong. It was Lies. still patriarchy. And that that's that that's definitely the context that we should have going into this. Anything we get in anything we get in Percy Jackson that is like we hate Zeus, Zeus sucks, it's a it's ten times worse than the OG stuff. <laughs> they really did tame him for the series, and he's still awful in the series. <laughs> yep. Quick quick overview of um of like the creation myth for humankind and for men and women in Greek myth. It's very, very similar to the Bible. Um, I'm sure you could read lots of uh, comparative literature articles on that, but you know it's it's different in different myths. But typically mm-hmm. believed to come into account either by Prometheus, Titan who fought on the side of the gods, he like fashioned mankind, um, and other times in different stories, it's the gods themselves, like the Zeus era gods, the Olympians, who created human beings at first out of gold, and then there was silver, and then we are like the fifth version of humans, which are like the Iron Generation. Um, and all of these stories, uh, every different account, it is always men. There were only men on Earth until our lovely friend Pandora. Yes. Who, in true Eve fashion, was basically created by Zeus to be the downfall of men, the the origin uh, not only of womanhood, but of suffering in the world and pain Ooh. and everything that is evil and terrible. All mm-hmm. the same thing. Yes. Women <laughs> equal suffering and sinning. Um, so Pandora opened the yeah. box, Eve ate the apple. Specifically, and now we yeah. have sin. It, it's, it's like P- Pandora releases sin upon humanity, but it's also like, like Eve, it's because she's curious specifically. Like they mm-hmm. tell her, like, mm. they, they like give her a gift knowing that she will fail, which I don't know how people argue about Eve. I would argue that that's also there in that story. Same, yeah. But um, yeah, ba- basically, like, it, it's meant to be like a punishment to like Prometheus and his family and the creations that he has made through like the vessel of Pandora who they know will fail and they know will like release all these plagues upon humanity because she dares to you know be curious it's it's not good. we don't <laughs> we, we don't love the story this world. no yeah. no learning new things no women <laughs> like learning or using knowledge or gaining skills or anything like that carter yes okay that, that groundwork being laid would you like to discuss uh, the first myth that we will be chatting about today. Yeah, let's let's dive right in. So um, we're starting off with sort of like, um, I don't want to say more conventional ground, but sort of more conventional ground. Like the first thing we're going to talk about is a myth of Achilles and Patrocles, which is, I would say, one of the more famous queer myths, mm-hmm. largely because sure. um, it deals, well, like with uh, one of the least men? marginal queer identities, which is like <laughs> cisgendered men who are attracted to other men who are masculine and strong who are masculine and strong exactly it's it is like mask for mask so uh, for those of you who don't remember achilles achilles is of course like the greatest warrior in greek mythology maybe barring hercules but not really achilles is the son of thetis and a mortal king the the reason why he was born basically is that the gods all wanted to get with Thetis because she was supposed to be very attractive. But there was a prophecy saying that Thetis's son would be like far more powerful than his father. So then Zeus and Poseidon and all of them were like, "Oh, that actually never mind. That sounds like the end of the Olympian age. Why don't we give her to some random weak mortal king who we kind of like and tell him to rape her?" And that's how Achilles is born. Um, he um, oh. is most famously vulnerable, except for his heel, which is the one invulnerable did i say that he's invulnerable everywhere in his body 
except for his heel, where he can be injured. That is, of course, where the idiom Achilles heel comes from. Uh, he's also, like, uh, the reluctant greatest fighter in the Trojan War, um, the 10-year siege of the city of Troy in West Asia, led by the Greeks to allegedly reclaim Helen, the wife of Menelaus, but in actuality, economically plunder this very valuable shipping strait in the name of all of Greece. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, this is, like, oh sort of, I don't want to say, like, easy queerness but like it's mask for mask gay men being in love with each other (laughs) 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 it's like the form of queerness that was most dominant and accepted in ancient greece like it is not a form of queerness and now now. but like in ancient greece certain identities like lesbianism did not really exist like trans identities did not really exist like there was not space held for people who were like asexual you know intersex genderqueer, etc. The, the thing that maps onto modern queer identity that was allowed and visible in ancient Greece was like rich and powerful men having relationships with other men that were sexual and outside the bounds of marriage. These relationships were often with people who were younger, often with people who were of lower status, often with people who were like slaves in a lot of situations. And they didn't come with um, like identity or label differentiations like it wasn't mm-hmm. people were not queer people weren't different because they engaged in these relationships this was something that was just sort of accepted that it was like having a mistress exactly it, it was just a sort of a norm that powerful men would engage in but was also sort of outside of the in some ways still outside the bounds of like what was conventional and that you would never marry another man you would not raise children with another man like they would not be a part of your household um they would mm-hmm. you know like be uh yes these, uh, the word for these relationships that i uh, spent a long time trying to look up is uh pederasty um relationships mm-hmm. between men and boys um you see this a lot in like other like classic god and mortal interactions zeus and ganymede is like a famous one poseidon and pelops apollo and hyacinth hermes and perseus and some myths etc yeah. there's kind of a lot of those but Achilles is childhood friends with Patroclus. Patroclus is like a below average warrior, whereas Achilles is, of course, like the greatest warrior. So you can see sort of ways in which it is mass for mass, but also Patroclus is like kind of Achilles' servant and is seen as like much more like effeminate. Like while Achilles is off to battle during the siege of Troy, Patroclus is normally like tending horses and like, you know, like doing like service work rather than fighting people. In the war itself, Achilles... You know, Achilles and Agamemnon take uh, part in the basically like overthrowing of some neighboring cities to Troy to get themselves supplies and stuff. And in one of those raids, uh, they take two princesses as basically like into sexual slavery, um, Mm -hmm. one of whom is named um, Briseis. And Briseis is basically like pledged to Achilles. Agamemnon, who, by the way, is like the the king leading the greater Greek army here, has to give up the, the woman who was pledged into sexual servitude to him as a sacrifice to Apollo. So he wants to then like take for himself Briseis from Achilles. Achilles is really pissed about this, and he decides to basically sit out the war um, and the, until the Greek side like starts losing and Agamemnon relents. Achilles also, in in these discussions, sometimes refers to um, Briseis as his wife, although it seems pretty clear that Briseis views the situation as one of bondage, as one of slavery. At this point, Patroclus, who is like Achilles' best friend, depending on... Uh, Homer's very, like, no homo about it. Um, uh, like, <laughs> in, in, in the Iliad, they're just, like, very, very close companions. Patroclus <laughs> takes Achilles' armor to go help shore up the Greek army, because the assumption is that people will think it's Achilles leading everyone into battle. They'll be afraid. It'll give them an edge. Shout out to Selena from um, 
last little bit. That's kind of a spoiler. We spoil everything. I guess that's fine. Um, but um, Patrick Liss is killed by Hector, who like kind of figures it out and like is obviously a much better warrior than Patrick Liss, who's not very good. Achilles is super mad. This is basically the most upset he's gotten about everything. Flies into a rage, rejoins the fight, and like really brutally murders Hector and like desecrates his body. Like does all these things to it that are considered like very, very you know terrible and unholy. But also we get like Achilles mourning um, Patroclus in a way that he does not mourn anyone else. He uses language that is used by widows in the Iliad and like basically says he wants his ashes when he dies in the Trojan War as he's fated to do to be mixed with Patroclus's, which is sort of like a, you know, a symbol of like an important defining <laughs> bond. Homer, Homer said no homo for this, but um, Plato um, in the symposium, which is sort of I would say, like, the most famous, like, work on love in its different forms of antiquity um, is very, very explicit about saying, like, Achilles and Patroclus were one of the greatest examples of love. Which, of course, we are going to want to complicate because, like, the reason why this is all set off is because of Achilles getting upset about the loss of a sex slave. Like, you know, it's 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 complicated. It's difficult to, to categorize this because um, it, this story is also, like, a very good illustration of the fact, again, like, even when these relationships are elevated in a way that they would not have been by most people living in ancient Greece, they can be seen as great loves, but they can't be seen within, like, any, like, meaningful societal structures. <laughs> like, it's not like it replaces marriage or relationships mm-hmm. with women which is like fine like they would not have identified as gay they might have identified they might have identified as bisexual but probably would not have even identified as bisexual they would have just been like people you know living their lives and maybe leaning a little bit into that one relationship achilles also takes part in like very violent sexual exploitation of women in another point in the story that we should also mention because when he's trying to hide from the trojan war uh, his mother tries to dress him up as a princess and hide him that way and it is in his capacity as like a man pretending to be a woman living in women's quarters that he rapes the princess of the like kingdom that he's taking refuge in and this is something that we should shout out as like definitely a way in which antiquity heavily informs some of the most problematic and most violent uh, cultural notions that we have about the dangers of queer folks particularly like you might recognize echoes of like trans bathroom panics in this story like the idea that 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 people identified as male at birth would only dress up as women in order to sexually exploit women um achilles does this in the story zeus does this in um another famous story with um calliope zeus pretends to be artemis to rape a woman that's a tough one it it's very tough one um (laughs) Uh, I also want to shout out, like, a modern retelling of this myth um, in Song of Achilles. It's, like, sort of modernized. Um, It's a, like, modern novel. Madeline Miller. It's cool. I, like, mostly like it. It's, like, a good, interesting balance of elements that are, like, very of that time in terms of their own identification, their conceptualization, with also certain modernizations. Like, in in Song of Achilles, there's, like, Achilles and Patroclus seem very self-aware of, like, a queering and an otherness to themselves that Mm. seems maybe ahistorical. Anyway, it's an interesting read. Would recommend it. Ooh. That's that's all that on Achilles. Um, that was kind of long. Straight, straight off the bat, like the themes that I think we're going to explore through all of these is basically the ways in which like we can see like these myths as perpetuating lots of stereotypes and archetypes of queer people that are like very bad and unhealthy in terms of like the progress <laughs> of queer people getting rights in a society. Mm-hmm. And also in terms mm-hmm. of like what a healthy way to live a queer identity might look like. Like mm-hmm. they, they, they're not good role models per se like you should not try to 
emulate Achilles and Patroclus's relationship, I would say. In your own relationships. In your but... relationships, folks listening at home. <laughs> <laughs> Do not, don't, don't, honestly, try, don't try it at home. Something that this made me think of when, we were ta- when you were talking earlier, uh, just the fact that like we, we love to romanticize ancient Greece as being like super queer and like super open and accepting as a society, when in reality, like the one kind of sort of condoned gay relationship was between two men Mm -hmm. um and that reminds me so much of a conversation we had with somebody who visited our school to our our theater program (laughs) and told us that broadway like the theater community which we also love to romanticize modern day and say is like the most gay most open most accepting queer community when it comes to it being racist or queer phobic in any way or misogynist or misogynist Mm -hmm. at all this man who is i will not name obviously but uh runs a very very famous regional theater basically was like, well, Broadway was created by white, gay, cis men. And so therefore... It's their it, safe space. It is their safe space. And so yeah. take it or leave it. Like, I mean, as, as was also shouted out in the beginning, like this, this is the kind of specific mythology, like the rest of the stories we tell would not be told by the people who were like, say like in Victorian England, trying to advocate for their own relationships, which again, were also between like super rich. Also, we should mention like very, very wealthy, mm-hmm. Ex- powerful, mm-hmm. like white men. We're like literally, yeah, like only interested in their relationship with other white men. That said, it's a cool story. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people are there who are not perhaps not rich white gay cis men who might um, find something inspiring. Uh, to, I think he had no interest out. in researching this because of that reason, but <laughs> I'm sure it means a lot to a lot of people. Moving on down our little bullet point list here: Aphroditus, Aphrodite, Hermaphroditus, big collective of stories about somebody who's kind of the same person. The main idea with the hermaphroditus, um, of course, from which we get the term hermaphrodite, which is a slur, but hermaphroditus was uh, the child of Aphrodite and Hermes, hence the name. He was a very exceptionally handsome young man who came across the pool of a nymph who was just obsessed with him named Salamachus. She prayed to like, or she either prayed or, you know, quote, called out to the gods as she jumped on him to uh, unite them forever because he wasn't that into her. And in that moment, the gods answered her prayer, quote unquote, and merged the two of them into one. So from this, like, says man, he became a combination of himself and this nymph. So the typical portrayals of hermaphroditus will be somebody who has, quote, like a woman's physical external appearance with like male external genitalia. And then also like... After that, anyone who bathed in the pond of that nymph, like, was, like, emerged effeminate with, like, effeminate features. So, obviously, there is a lot in that one little story. Mm -hmm. And that story sort of came after the original depiction of um, Aphroditus, which, uh, like, came out, like, something like 500 BC. I probably don't quote me on that. Um, But there was, like, a statue that came out of Cyprus of this, like, Aphroditus figure, which was basically Aphrodite as the goddess of love, um, but with, like, lifting up her skirt to reveal, like, male genitalia. So it was this, like, gender-neutral slash intersex slash um, just, like, androgynous depiction of the goddess Aphrodite. And then the, the story kind of merged into having Hermaphroditus and Aphrodite's being like the same character. Some people argue that Venus, the Roman name for Aphrodite, came from a neuter noun Venus. And so therefore mm-hmm. the Roman version of Aphrodite was like a, a gender, gender neutral god. 
Mm-hmm. Um, which also makes sense because as we talked about, like in a lot of stories, Aphrodite is the oldest of the gods, <laughs> predates um, gender in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, like pretty much the way that we see Aphrodite these days is as a very specific kind of woman. Which Rick really leans into. into. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's obviously like, <laughs> there's just so much that you can take from that. I think that it's not necessarily one of the myths that we like look on as being particularly iconic and like that we love um i've never heard it before yeah it's just it especially because i think that it obviously comes with baggage of the history of the word um Mm -hmm. that we don't want to i don't want to say it a million times but like this this like while we're on the topic of this like mythological character who some in some accounts was uh visited like visited the earth all the time and in some accounts was considered literally to be a monster Mm -hmm. because of their physical body it just ties into, our, of course, the long history of like Western medicine dealing very poorly and not rightfully with uh, people who are born intersex, which is the a very big umbrella term that we use now for anyone who has quote like non typical um, male or female uh, yeah physicality when they are born. I'll just say for me, like I I did like read the myth of like hermaphroditus as like a kid like it wasn't in Dallaire's mm. but it wasn't like um interesting some other anthology like it, it was like definitely it was the first exposure I had had when I was like really little to like not intersex identity because they don't you know like in most of these mythologies like they don't use like words to that, mm. that would map on well identify. to like modern identity yes. markers but you know to to what we today might refer to as, as like an intersex person if anything it just speaks to the fact that like there have always been intersex people mm-hmm. like there have yes. always yep. been just like there have always been gay people and there have always been rich white gay men like <laughs> just the fact like these stories did not pop out of out of yes nothing be- because these stories were written to like you know ex- like religion to explain how real things happen on the real earth that you see in front of you so clearly whoever wrote this like saw an intersex person and was like here's a myth to explain what i've seen yeah mm-hmm. you know so yeah, it's that's exactly what it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did read one article though while researching for this episode that was that was clearly very old and was like, obviously the myth of Hermaphroditus was not based in anything real. Obviously these people don't exist. But and I was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa there, <laughs> whoa they're missing the point. For clarification, <laughs> there are very, there, there are like a lot of intersex people. Yes, yes. Tani and I have been talking a lot about this recently. I don't know why, but I think like India Moore had a friend who was like working. Um, really hard on trying to get one specific hospital to stop performing intersex surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it's called Lori's Hospital, and one doctor specifically to stop performing these surgeries non-consensually on babies mm-hmm. to give them gender and give them sex and give them that identity that we must have to function in this world. Apparently, um, but when I brought it up to um, my parents, like, <laughs> like I, I was literally told like. Intersex people like don't exist. Who are doctors? Who who are doctors? (laughs) But gender and sex are binary. Like that, just that. Like that. That's like a very rare thing, and it's a very rare occurrence. And it's and I was like, well, no, it can't be that rare. If if like if you have entire protests made up of intersex people at one hospital, Mm -hmm. like how many more people can there possibly like i'm like it's you can't just say they don't exist and how would you know because so many of these surgeries happen Mm -hmm. and they happen under uh under the radar like they don't get Mm -hmm. recorded and people don't find out till they're fully adults that they even were given like these surgeries when they were 
you know, a couple months old. Yeah, it's horrifying. It's not good at all. Um, but I'm glad that there's like a rule in California now where um, you, it is illegal to perform such surgeries on babies. Um, so there's some progress being made. And, and, and it and comes out of the history of this character in some ways. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, n- next, we're going to talk briefly about Kainus, um, I think is the proper <laughs> Latin pronunciation. So Kainus was born Kainis, which um, for those of you who are familiar with Latin, you might recognize <laughs> those two names as like being gendered differently, right? Where like Kainis can be gendered female, whereas Kainus is gendered male. Th- th- this ha- character in mythology, I guess you could call them, was born Kainis, sexed and gendered female, which again, like, the sex and gender differentiation was not like really, I think, conceptually very strong or prominent at this point. So I, mm-hmm. I'm just going to use both terms here. Um, <laughs> Kindness was desired by um, Neptune. And basically they said that, you know, like, I'll have sex with you in exchange for you granting me one wish, whatever I want. Neptune agrees. And Kindness says that the wish is that she, I guess, pronouns are also difficult, wants to become a man. Kainus asked for this before sex, and uh, most of the myths basically say that Neptune, like, was not actually into the sex at this point because of what he had heard. Mm. Afterwards, um, Kainus does become Kainus. There's, like, a sex and gender transition, which, again, like, that, that, that distinction's not very clear, but they are understood to be a man afterwards. Most versions of the myth go beyond that to say that Kainus is also like impenetrable, which yeah, there's a lot of phallic I- imagery in the in the mm. myth, which some people might read as like an assertion of masculinity. Some people might read as a response to this like sexual exploitation from Neptune or both. And basically, what happens to Kainus in these versions of the myth, where they become impenetrable and sort of like Achilles-like, then in nature, is that they basically get attacked by like a bunch of transphobic centaurs. And in different versions of the myth, either like are crushed by the transphobic centaurs underneath tons and tons of like trees Mm -hmm. and rocks and such or they escape the transphobic centaurs because the gods transform them into a golden bird that is able to fly away yes so um this myth comes from ovid's metamorphosis which is like sort of you know um one of the more famous works of classical antiquity also has Um, a lot of the gay stories also has a lot of the gay stories and a lot of like the trans stories because they are all about like Mm -hmm. changing yeah like this is a story that like we might say maps onto the trans identity but it's difficult to say how much kindness self-identified previously and self-identifies afterwards there's also like um as is noted by helen morales some like interesting pronoun stuff in the metamorphosis and in like other retellings of the story where like maybe they use male pronouns slightly before like which is something interesting to think about there this yeah. is a story that t- 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 tells a story of transness that like uh, is probably does not map onto modern transness very well in that it seems to showcase like a specific traumatic event as the impetus mm-hmm. for transition rather than right. identity but also, like, some people might read this, and some people have read this and basically said, like, I, you know, have always envisioned a moment where I am, like, invulnerable and get to, like, beat up transphobes and, Woo! like, not experience sexual violence, which fly I mean, away is a golden bird. Also, like, cool. Yes. There's a study that we're going to talk about a little bit later that discuss just how many of these stories that, like, don't map onto modern versions of trans mm-hmm. and queer identity do, do mean something to people just in the fact of representation it also speaks i mean to me when i was like hearing it for the first time another another myth i don't i didn't know Mm -hmm. um but i guess like 
about like sex as currency and the, the conversation around like sex workers right now is is like I feel like kind of on the forefront I think uh in intersection with transness and like the amount of like trans especially trans people of color that are sex workers um and the like utilizing this kind of this currency of their bodies um often in order to enact change within themselves like the change that kindness asks for Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um I think also like this uh, in in the in a negative reading of this people such as our dear friend JK Rowling may take this as a story of being like oh yes um transness and and what it means to be a trans man is to escape womanhood because you desire to escape the oppression that is womanhood as opposed to you are a trans man yeah um which of course is like a dangerous reading and something that we don't want to perpetuate and something that is really just deeply frustrating and and a misunderstanding Mm yes 100% this is a somber episode (laughs) this is lots of very important things to discuss (laughs) um okay um moving on quickly uh just gonna cover real quick what would be a queer classics episode without a little talk about Sappho and Lesbo Woo! woo um I found it really interesting just researching a little bit about really who Sappho was. We don't know. We have mm-hmm. very little information about Sappho. We have very little of her writings mm-hmm. um, intact, like very, very little of what is believed to be her uh, career mm-hmm. as a writer, as a poet. Um, Sappho uh, basically has a reputation for being the iconic lesbian of Greek history. Um, of antiquity because she wrote poems about women loving women and as well as women loving men. Um, and of course, Lesbo, the island that she's from, is where we get the term lesbian, which of course now means woman who loves a woman, perhaps. Perhaps it means something else these days, honestly. Um, but <laughs> typically means a cis woman who loves a woman. And uh, what I learned is that, in fact, in history, to call someone like lesbian or, or whatever the Greek verb was didn't was like of course means to act like somebody from Lesbos, which has come to mean to act like Sappho, who we believe was a lesbian. Honestly, may or may not probably was not an actual lesbian. Mm-hmm. But uh, back in the day, to act like someone from Lesbos, according to a New Yorker article called "Girl Interrupted: Who Was Sappho?" by David Mendelssohn, um, the actual original meaning of calling someone like from Lesbos was to have a penchant for doing uh, something that, to me, I feel a little bit dirty to mention on the podcast right now, but you can go and read the article yourself. Um, It is ironic, based on what we now think of that definition as being... Awkward. Yes, Carter. It's really awkward for all of us. You can see that in our notes. It it really is awkward. I I read that and I was like, oh, okay, well, (laughs) but frankly, in in pop culture and all, we we still see Sappho as our lesbian queen regardless. So it's okay. It truly is okay. The point is that whether or not she was a lesbian and her work was lesbian poetry of the time, that is what it means to people now. And it, it inspires people and it makes them feel great. And so who are we to deny anyone that? Yeah. Um, there's a quote at the end of this New Yorker article that says, Indeed, the vision of Sappho as a solitary figure pouring out her heart in women's quarters of a nobleman's mansion is a sentimental anachronism, a projection, like so much of our thinking about her, of our own habits and institutions onto the past. Um, which is great. I think that our sentimental anachronisms and our projections are very positive, And I think that we should continue doing that as long as it helps us and it makes us feel good. Let's continue just sentimentally projecting onto the past. Yeah. 
Why not? Also, Sappho's poetry is just like good. Like, it's worth. I want to put that out there for those of you who haven't read it. Alrighty, and then last but not least, certainly not least, I think perhaps one of the most interesting mm-hmm. is the story of Iphis and Ianthe. This is an Ovid story. It's in the Metamorphosis. Um, people think of this as being like the lesbian myth, also like the only lesbian myth, although like Sappho has come to be a myth herself, but obviously we're going to talk about it. And that is something that I think uh, deserves unpacking. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically this woman, Telethusa was pregnant. Lydgis, her husband said if the baby was a girl, he was going to get rid of it. Um, so Telethusa prayed to Isis Yes, this is the um, Egyptian Isis. Shout out to Roman imperialism. <laughs> um, <laughs> Telethusa prayed to is it, Isis and yes. said, raise the child as a boy, regardless of the gender, and no one will know. And of course, um, the sex of the baby that was born was uh, female. And so Telethusa raised the child as a boy and named the child Iphis, which is a um, gender neutral name. Fast forward several years, Iphis falls in love with Ianthe, local girl. Um, their father actually arranges for them to be married, but Iphis is like freaking out because Iphis is one of like two people in the world who knows that their sex is female. And sort of like the way we discuss the story is now that Iphis's gender identity was perhaps male, having like grown up that way and been conditioned that way. Mm-hmm. So their sex did not match their gender, theoretically, in one way of reading the story. Mm-hmm. And so Iphis and Telethusa go to Isis's temple, pray, 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 pray before the wedding. And Isis transforms Iphis's body so that their sex is now male in addition to like their physical gender presentation. Mm-hmm. The way it's described is as like um, Iphis gets longer legs, bigger muscles, shorter hair. And from then, like Iphis and Ianthe get married. Um, it's the line translates to if it's the boy marries Ianthe mm-hmm. and it's happy and it's a happy mm-hmm. ending and that's the story so obviously wow. um, <laughs> very complicated as far as what kind of modern um, identity titles we would map onto it there's uh, several lines about if it's being so nervous about getting married because not only is lesbian um, love as we mentioned in antiquity like not allowed like but mm-hmm. like Iphis themselves believes that it goes against nature, like old male and female animals, and that is the way, which of course we know is not true. Mm-hmm. So is this a story of? I, mean, I feel like I feel like it doesn't have to be like a even like a line between like it's either lesbian or trans. I think it's absolutely yes. both. Mm-hmm. And I also feel as if there is like I think more and more so much of an acceptance that there is a lot of crossover. In mm-hmm. those communities. Although if you watch the L word, they'll tell you there's not. <laughs> Boo! The L word is so, so transphobic. It should just is ah. Um, but I mean it I think that at the same time, like that show speaks to a time when a lot of many people in the lesbian community, um, specifically like butch lesbians, were mm-hmm. beginning being trying to identify as trans men and and to transition and lesbians feeling betrayed um, by members of their own community. But I think more so now, I think there's slow, slow change happening, but I think that people are trying to see that, like, oh, like, we're all still a community, and we're all still Mm -hmm. queer, and if, you know, if my partner comes out as trans, I'm still a lesbian. Mm -hmm. I can still be a lesbian. Like, that's 
that isn't who I am. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I only sleep with people who have vaginas, which that's just simply not what it means, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think there's a lot more, I think, uh, of a crossover. I think that kind of this story definitely leans into in terms of how those two communities and two identities can, can intersect and find the happy ending. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. That was beautiful. Wow. It was truly beautiful time. Thank you. Coming out of, um, coming out, coming out of the conversation of where a lot of these terms originated, um, and the complicated and complex and, uh, sort of problematic, um, origin story of these terms that we use in the modern day is also like a component of saying like, okay, well, like, what does lesbian mean? It, it doesn't have to mean this one specific thing um, because it, it, it didn't even originally mean this one specific thing. It, it really only matters what it means to the people who choose to use that word to identify themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Same with like people that are like bisexual is not trans, but bisexual like is not binary. It means like people with my gender and people with other genders, like I think just like over, like even like more so queering the terms that seem to be like less queer than others. Mm -hmm. But I feel as if like lesbian has become a term to mean like people that, (laughs) that like just like don't conform to the need to like have love from cis men. There's a quote that Helen Morales uh, has in, in Antigone Rising. And she says, when I was young, women were straight, bisexual, or lesbian. For the record, I'm a cis woman and bisexual, which is a pity because bisexual is society's least favored orientation, tolerated, but a bit of a disappointment. Which I so I wrote so this funny. down. <laughs> I, I wrote also, this down I and I texted you about it. this. It's like, <laughs> how did we're almost like, that's the tea. It's so funny. All right, we're going to take a quick break here before we come back to end the episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Um, Carter, do you want to give your little disclaimer here? <laughs> yeah. Something that, like, I really wanted to say at the end of this after doing all this research is that, like, the ancient Greeks were not special. Like, this is very important <laughs> for me to say that there are other cultures that were much more queer normative and there were, certainly that were much less patriarchal than ancient Greece. Like, the idea that ancient Greece is some sort of, like, utopian end-all, be-all for queerness, as we have explored in this conversation, is very misleading, but also, like, <laughs> The idea that we can't do better is is wrong and bad and like is really unfounded and only is something that we have because of the extent to which like white hegemony has tried to adopt Greek mythology and, and to classical antiquity through Greece and Rome as its own origin story. Mm-hmm. I would I, I think that there's a lot of value in seeking out other stories and other cultures and other interpretations of gender, particularly identities and lies that challenge what we think of as heteropatriarchy as like the male, female gender and sex binary. Um, I would particularly mention this resource that PBS has put together called the map of gender diverse cultures. It like is literally like a Google map with like pins dropped in it of different places around the world where you can go and read about people who identify in different ways in lots of different cultures and have identified that way. Um, Yes. I think this is also particularly important to mention because of this narrative that like, uh, that like European culture, particularly like European and white approaches to queerness are like special, enlightened, 
like the standard that like this is the furthest we've ever gotten with the queer rights movement because of mostly like liberal white people and like (laughs) it's it's simply not true it is simply Mm -hmm. not true that minoritized Mm -hmm. communities are more structurally violent to queer people particularly if you look at institutional powers and who controls them it just does not make sense if you look at colonial histories and the way in which european empires forced queer phobia onto lots of different indigenous communities around the world like it just yep yes we're just gonna put that all out there like this is like this is an important discussion to have because we do like most of us live under like white hegemony on like (laughs) earth and in america um (laughs) and so like you know the myths are in the water and it's useful to like think about them and like you know have this framework for them but it's also useful to just at a certain point say like you know what like there's also other things out there and maybe it's more cool to learn about like thailand why not we all should shout out to tani <laughs> oh yes to <laughs> <laughs> being thai <laughs> um yeah that being said like there is a reason some reason that so many queer folks have latched onto the myths um and yes. it's really interesting to think about that and think about these stories in that way there's a really interesting study done by hannah clark um, you can Google queer classic survey of LGBTQ plus classicists reveals community and continuity about <laughs> how like a variety of, of queer and genderqueer youth um, have seen themselves in these stories and, and how these have had stories have had positive effects on people. It's really interesting. Also interesting to know is that it, something that the study found was that the three most iconic like queer figures uh, to young people were Sappho, Achilles and Artemis. So Ooh. very cool. And I suppose Maybe. it's impossible to know what ex- what the extent of Rick Riordan had on, yeah. on the the results of the survey, but I mean, you also like mentioned the 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 uh, the like particular like finding that she highlights right about like why they look to antiquity rather than just like like why it's different than basically like queer fandom or like other ways of seeing queer identities because of this idea of like independence of time and social movements that like that these people existed at all points in all cultures. Yeah. See, I mean, representation matters. Hashtag representation matters. <laughs> Truly, literally the act of seeing oneself. Obviously, representation without accountability is something we're discussing right now. And that is also important. Yes. But seeing yourself is, um, there's nothing like that. That is literally the greatest feeling in the world to to be validated by seeing something outside of yourself that, that you um, relate to. All right. I'm going to move uh, on to Tawny. What do you feel is the significance of subverting these stories i mean i definitely like felt like i you know greek mythology was cast upon me you know by academia so in that in that vein like when it's what you're given like you kind of just have to start parsing through what you're given and make it as fruitful of an experience as possible mm-hmm. and I think part of that does become like link we automatically begin like making links to our own experience period I mean that's been my experience through my entire life with like the character of Peter Pan mm-hmm. you know um and so I-, I think that we you know we automatically like begin doing that and I think that yes like the, the Greek canon is such a huge part of just as young people like what is just like required of us in in public schools and beyond that just like into into higher higher academia that like it's like the end-all be-all like the original literature 
<laughs> fake, but it's the <laughs> creation mythology that like America chose for itself. Yes, they said this is this is the original literature. This is what everything's based on. Like you know, Greek, 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 uh, Greek uh, plays. There like, are that's... no angels in America. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, exactly. Here in Western society, like that is our origins, and so to live in this society, I guess I do have to like go back to the origins and find myself in those places to survive to, yeah to survive because otherwise like what am i doing here like you know um and if the origin stories have me in it then that means that the stories now must somewhere because the original ones yeah. did yeah Thank, that was beautiful as usual, Tawny. Um, to close today's episode, mirroring Antigone Rising by Helen Morales one more time, I wanted to mention <laughs> this quote from Girl Meets Boy by Ali Smith, which is a retelling modern novel of Iphis and Ianthe. It was always the stories that needed the telling that gave us the rope we could cross any river with. They made us brave. They made us well. They changed us. It was in their nature, too. Woo! Thank you so much for joining us today, Tawny, and being so open and honest with all of your thoughts and opinions. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Carter, and and us for doing all that research. Um, <laughs> thank you, Helen Morales. Thank you, Helen Morales, Queen. <laughs> hope hope she's listening to this. Next week, we will be back with Uncle Rick hitting up sure the will. Battle of the Labyrinth. We're going to do something very special with our special guests for these next few episodes, so stay tuned. And if you're still listening right now, good for you. You made it this far. Uh, you made it through a lot it was, of stuff. It's been a lot. A lot of heavy stuff. Important stuff. We didn't quite get to our other queer stories recommendations, but we will drop them on the Instagram or something. Go follow us, <laughs> see the podcast, and look out for those. Thanks. Bye. See you later. <laughs> okay, bye.